Today, as we continue with our sermon series on the church, one of the second to the last week in our sermon series about the church, today we're talking about serving in the church. And there's no better example for one serving in the church, the heart of a servant, than Jesus Christ himself. Philippians chapter 2 says that he came, in, he came to this earth, made himself a servant, a servant even unto death. And again, as we're looking here at the second to last week of, of our sermon series on the church, and you see the title there from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, serving in the church, almost the byline of this sermon title could be servant leadership, servant leadership. And again, as I mentioned, we see that exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ, who even coming to this earth, what we celebrate at this time of of the year, stepping out of glory and stepping into this earth, we see as servant leadership. And of course, he was a servant even unto death on the cross. So we see servant leadership today. And I saw another example of servant leadership just this past week. And we've been watching college basketball, as I know some of you have as well. And there's a tournament going on down in the Bahamas called the Battle for Atlantis. Maybe you've been watching some of this. It's really interesting because they actually play these games in a ballroom of a resort. And so it's interesting, kind of the lighting's interesting, the camera angle is interesting. I actually like it because you can get a kind of better depth of field and the height of the players. It's just really interesting. Well, one of the things they deal with, though, being in the Bahamas and playing in a ballroom is oftentimes the sort of atmosphere, if you will, in the, in the room is a little bit different. So much so like the physical atmosphere that they deal with humidity issues in this room and these playing surfaces. And so you see the, the court gets quite slippery at times. And so they'll have to stop. They'll have to mop up. You know, they have to do that in normal games no matter what the conditions are. But they seem to be doing it a lot more. And you see uh, players sliding around this sort of thing. And so, they, of course, they have the attendants. They have ball boys and the like in, in any of these arenas that come by with those mops. Well, the other day, the new coach, first-year coach for the Michigan Wolverines, his name is Jawan Howard. And he is actually uh, one of the Fab Five, if any of you guys uh, follow basketball, basketball from the early 90s. There's the Fab Five freshmen. They're all freshman starters. He's been a star since the moment he stepped into college basketball. Then he went on to a 10-plus year career in the NBA, was a pretty good uh, NBA player. Uh, all that to say, he's a guy that's done very well for himself in basketball. But what did he do when there was a timeout and there was a mopping up on the floor with no sort of ill will? There was no sense that you, that you got this idea that he didn't think the staff was doing a very good job. He just naturally just got down on his hands and knees, grabbed a towel, and started mopping up uh, one of the spots that was wet. Servant leadership. He was modeling for his guys that even though he is the coach, he's been a star for years, that he's not too big to get down on his knees and mop up a spot. Servant leadership. And that's what we see here in the midst of a church. And as we're again kind of bringing to a close this sermon series, we see serving in the church and servant leadership within the church is of vital, vital importance. And we see this arise in one particular place here in Acts chapter 6 in one particular issue, but it really is an exemplary passage and how they dealt with it for dealing with all issues of ministry and need for service within the local church. 
And it says this in verse 6. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Remember disciples here being used is not the inner 12 known later as the apostles of Jesus Christ. This is the term that's used for all believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the term for us as well. Even here in the 21st century, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And it says in that day, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. We'll come back to this, give a little more detail. But these were Jews, these were Jews and now Jewish converts to Christianity that had a Greek background. We'll talk about why that was a unique situation here in just a moment. But they're Greek in their culture, Greek in their language. So there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned, so this is the 12, the inner 12 disciples, those that were still in leadership, of course, in this early stages of the church. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now we'll get into that in just a moment. This isn't like waiting tables that I was a waiter myself. Uh, Many of you have waited tables in your past. This is not what he's talking about here. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven good men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to the prayer and the ministry of the word. And then the saying pleased the whole multitude. And what did they do? They chose Stephen. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see, we're going to reference it. But man, if you read ahead, after you leave today, read ahead the entirety of of Acts chapter 7, the first part of chapter 8, and see how he lived that out, that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. So again, chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They commissioned them. They said, this is of utmost importance. This is not some sort of leftover thing. Well, oh, we got to figure out somebody to do this thing that nobody wants to do. This is of utmost importance. And then what happened? Verse 7, and I don't think this is here by happenstance. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Here's, here's the thing that we see. Write this down. You'll see it on the screen. Servant leadership, no matter what the role is, servant leadership is required for every role, every role of leadership within the local church. Servant leadership isn't just uh, an important part of what I do as the pastor of the church, nor is it just an important part of what uh, you may do leading in different roles in the church, but it is a vital importance, extreme importance. It is crucial to every leadership role within the local church. Lord God, as we uh, continue to walk through this passage, and Lord, as we uh, look at this eternal truth, This eternal truth that is as relevant today in the 21st century as it was when it was written in the first. Lord, help us to be ones who exhibit servant leadership. Lord, we know that you came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. And so, Lord, let us exhibit that same sort of servant leadership knowing that we don't have to worry about number one, take care of number one, because if we are serving others and everyone's serving others, Our needs are met as well. 
But Lord, in all things, may we do it not for ourselves, nor even for others, but for your glory and your honor alone. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So you see servant leadership again throughout this passage, and servant leadership is vital in a local church. Vital in a local church. Of any church, of any stage of its growth, but especially for us as a church that we know are in the midst of a church revitalization where God, we're seeing God slowly but surely starting to do great and mighty things here in our midst. We're seeing these sparks of just fire uh, begin to emanate within us. And it is important for everyone to say, I'm putting my hand on the rope. I'm putting my hand on the plow and I'm going to work. Putting our hand on the rope together, we pull And we pull together for the glory of God. And so we see this example here of not just service, but servant leadership here in the early stages of the early church. Once again, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Now in those days there were a number of the disciples, when it was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That word there, distribution, is probably better translated as ministry. Diakonos is really the the word that's used later in Scripture for deacon. Here the word is, is, is diakonia, service, ministry. And so they felt as though, these Hellenists felt as though their widows who desperately needed attention and to be taken care of were being neglected in the daily ministry. Part of that maybe been distribution of goods and foods and, 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 and funds, whatever it may be, to help them take care of themselves, but just daily attention and ministry of the local church. So why was there this division? So again, the Hebrews spoken about here, of course, they're Hebrews within the local church. So there are Hebrews that came to faith in Christ, and these were Palestinian Jewish Christians. So those that were part of what they might have called the motherland. Those in Jerusalem and the near area was known as Palestine. And so some may have thought, maybe in some of their own minds, they might have thought, well, we're the ones that are sort of the, 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 the truer Jews or the truer Hebrews because we've been here in the motherland, if you will. But to give you a little bit of a history lesson that I give you from time to time, why were there Jews that were more Greek-speaking and and Greek in their culture? Well, again, as we know, dating all the way back to the time of Moses, the, the people of Israel were part of what was called a theocracy. God was their king. They were led by God and by his representatives, Moses, Aaron, in the time of the judges, the judges were the representatives of God. And of course, which was true to form for the Hebrew people, even though they had seen what God had done for them and God led them in mighty ways out of Egypt and protected them throughout the wilderness, they forgot about their God and his faithfulness unto them. And they looked around at the other nations. They said, well, these other nations have a king. We want a king as well. And God knew that that wasn't best for them, but God allowed it anyway. And so what did they do? They chose a king, and they didn't choose a king based upon godly characteristics. File that away for a little bit later in the sermon. But they they, uh, raised up Saul. Saul had all the worldly characteristics. He checked all of the boxes except for the fact, most importantly, he wasn't necessarily as his successor was a man after God's own heart. Saul was followed, of course, by David, and we see even in his uh, coming to the throne, he wasn't one that you naturally pick out of a lineup as sort of a natural-born leader by his looks, but God raised him up because his heart was right, and even though he fell into sin, he was still a man overall after God's own heart. But what did it do? It still illustrated the fact that it was still a human being. It was still a human being at the place of leadership 
and not God himself. His son followed, which was Solomon, and we know Solomon was the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth, but he too fell into sin. He saw this play out, his consequences play out by the dividing of his family, and in fact, the dividing of the kingdom. Now there were two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And Israel and Judah, over several hundred years of their history, and 39 kings, there were only two kings that you could call righteous, and even they had their failings. Once again, a human king makes no measure against God. So we see their history continue, and they continue to slip further and further away from the Lord, fall further and further away from him, till God had no other choice but to judge the two nations of Israel and Judah. 722, Assyria came in. 722 BC, Assyria came in, conquered Israel. Followed later, 586 BC, Babylon conquered Judah. And then after that, we see the scattering of the people of Israel, scattering of the Hebrews, scattering of the Jews to all over the the world. Now, some still did remain there around Jerusalem, and we see some coming back of those people over the following centuries. But understandably, Jews by their race and Jews by their religion were scattered all over the world. And so you find them in all these different ports of call. And so many of them, of course, as Greek was the dominant language and Greek uh, was sort of the dominant culture of the day, many of them took the look of and took the language of the Greek people. And so they were known as Hellenists, Hellenists. And so there were some of these that were part of the local church at the time. But you can imagine by some of the, the, the Jews that had come to faith in Christ, they saw them as different. We, you know, we are the ones that, that are here, born and raised here. We're the ones that are born and raised here in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. You all, whatever brought you back to this place, you're not like us. And what does it remind us of? Division and the sort of us versus them mentality is at the heart of human brokenness, right? We've seen it throughout human history. The sort of division and the us versus them mentality is at the heart of of human brokenness. And you see it kind of coming to the surface. This was the last straw, if you will, about something that was sort of boiling at the time in the early church. And what does it remind us of as well? That the enemy, Satan, is out there. If he hasn't won the, if he hasn't won the battle for our soul and our life, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we've been saved, we've been changed, we've been born again. He's lost that battle. So what does he then do? He tries to battle on the battlefield of ineffectiveness of the gospel. He wants you and me and this local church, whatever it might be, he wants us to be ineffective for the gospel. He wants to do whatever, so whatever seed of discord, whatever seed of disunity he can so that we are ineffective for going out there in our place of business, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our social clubs that we're involved in. And together as a church, he wants us to go out there and be ineffective for the gospel. And so in whatever way he can, he wants to sow disunity and discord and tap into those mentalities that are right there in the heart of human brokenness. But even in that, we see in Galatians 3.28, we're admonished against this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is something greater than you, that unites us than where we're from and who we are in our background. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, that is our greatest point of unity. We're united in Jesus Christ. So what does it also remind us of here? It is the basis for biblical fellowship within the local church. 
biblical fellowship within the local church. If you've been with us for a few weeks, as part of this sermon series on the church, we've been giving you a couple of weeks of what we're calling 12 characteristics of the healthy church. We're going to put them up on the screen, some of those that we've given you already, and then the one we're going to highlight today in the midst of this sermon. Biblical evangelism, biblical discipleship, biblical membership. Do you see a theme? Biblical, yes, because everything that we do isn't based upon what we think is good, but based upon what does the Bible call us to do as a local church. Biblical leadership, biblical teaching and preaching. We'll see this arise here again as well. Today, biblical ordinances, those are the two things, the Lord's Supper and baptism that we're called to do as a church, the Lord's Supper, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and baptism, to remember his death and resurrection, and to demonstrate how he's changed our lives. Biblical prayer, biblical mission, and of course today, biblical fellowship. You see, coming out of this division, we see true biblical fellowship in the midst of this service in the local church. You know, as we've talked about before, biblical fellowship isn't a matter of, hey, we're just getting together for coffee or we get together for a potluck or we get together for lunch. Those are kind of natural manifestations of true biblical fellowship, certainly. Just the desire to be together because we have a link and we have a unity far greater than, than our background, our race, or our creed. We have, a, we have a, a link together, a unity together in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's it exemplified in? Proverbs 27, 17, we quote this verse all the time, as iron sharpens iron, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's the kind of relationship that lends itself and is practiced in helping one another grow in the Lord Jesus Christ by challenging when we need to challenge one another, by lovingly confronting one another when that needs to happen. And also by encouraging one another when that needs to happen. And so you see this, even in the midst of this sort of narrative here that happened in the early church, there was true biblical fellowship being enacted. There was a difficulty, there was an issue, and it needed to be challenged in order that their unity might be preserved and that they too might stay on mission. Biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship. Important for the local church. Vital to the local church. But what do we see here as well? One thing I want to kind of camp out on for a minute is this bit here about widows. Um, that, that They were neglected. The Hellenistic widows were being neglected in the daily ministry. Whether that was a distribution, as it's translated in many of our translations, of food or clothing or the daily necessities of life, that is a manifestation of ministry. But that original word there speaks of that ministry. And they were being neglected in that, these particular group of widows. But we're reminded of the fact in Scripture that caring for those, caring for those that cannot care for themselves, caring for those that have a difficulty in life, caring for those that the world might see as insignificant is the heart, is the heart of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. James 1.27 Write this, that reference down. Take a look on the screen here. Many of you have heard of this verse before. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That we are not to live in worldliness. In fact, what does worldliness say? Worldliness judges a person's significance based upon their usefulness, right? That person's significant if they're useful to me or they're useful to the world. 
But no, a person has genuine worth and value because they are a human being, no matter how significant you might think they are, but they're a human being created in the very image of God. And so those that are downtrodden, those that are often forgotten by society are the very people that we as the church, as the church of Jesus Christ, should care for just as he did. And in so doing, we live out his character of being a servant, a servant unto all. So again, we see here that there was this complaint that rose in the church, but they dealt with it. They dealt with it in a good and biblical and Christ-like way. So what, is they, what did they say? Of course, uh, this issue is happening. And then verse 2, we see how they begin to deal with this issue. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples. So the 12, those followers of Jesus Christ that were now called out as apostles into the world, the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So once again, this isn't a matter of, okay, they're you know, going and serving in a, in, a, in a restaurant or something like that, or even serving in a, in a context or of, of, uh, of a church and a meal is beneath them. That's not at all what's being spoken of here. And in fact, the word that's used there for tables is the same word that we remember in the narrative of Jesus Christ when he enters the temple. And we see that there are money changers sitting at the table. And of course, we know that he overthrew those, 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 those tables where the money changers were sitting. But what is it, this unique word used for table here? It speaks of almost not serving tables of food, but almost administratively. And so what does it remind us of? And how can we see this in the context of a local church? What he's saying is that service... Service, and especially administrative service, needing to be done with fairness is of extreme importance. But there are those that are called to that, and there are those that are called to other things. So here's what we see from that. Here's what we gather from it. All members, all members, write it down, have paramount importance as they are called, all called, the crucial ministries. We talk about members. Again, we're talking about members of a local church. All members of a local church have paramount importance as they are all called to crucial ministries. So whether, again, it's something like we see the closest equivalent here of the apostles of being called, which I'm called to do, of course, as a pastor, called to lead the church in prayer and the ministry of the word, as we see here that these are mentioned in this passage are called to as well, or whether it's whatever ministry of the church, all of these ministries are of vital importance. So you say, well, you know what? I don't have that much significance. You know, what do I really have to offer? There's just this particular ministry that I'm involved in in the church, and it's really not something that's very front and center. Is it that important? The answer is absolutely and unequivocally yes. It is of extreme importance. Extreme importance. Whatever God calls the church to do, whatever ministries that God calls our church to do are of tremendous importance. Now, we know that in any church, we aren't called to do every ministry. I mean, how can we find a ministry, especially when we think about mission projects, how can you find a mission project that's bad? I mean, we could all come up in this room here with 200 mission projects, 200 service projects, and they'd all be basically good, but we can't do all of them, right? But whatever a church is called to do, whatever ministry a church is called to do, and within the local church, whatever ministry it is you're called to do is of extreme importance, and you have paramount importance because it is crucial to the life of the church. Now, here's the thing. We're going to see here in verses 3 and following 
that it says that these apostles are called to these particular ministries of prayer and ministry of the word. We see this sort of exercised in, in pastoral leadership in the local church, but that doesn't mean that those things are relegated to the work of the pastor or the work of the ministerial staff. You as members, us together as members of the local church, we are all called to dig in deeply in the ministry of prayer, and we are all called to be about the ministry of the word. Now, it doesn't mean that you may be preaching sermons each week, or you might be leading a Bible study each week, although some of you do that, but we should all be well-versed in the word of God and the word of the gospel so that we too are out there in our world preaching, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So he says, again, continuing this into verse uh, 3, they say, Therefore, brethren, here's what you're called to do. Here's what we need to do. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. For we will give ourselves continually to the word, to the prayer, and the ministry of the word. You see, here's the thing. When, he w- when they were saying that these are people called out, call out these men and appoint them over this, they sought very specific things about them, which led them to be called to this, to this very ministry. So here's the thing. We do not, write this down, we do not appoint leadership. In a church, we must not appoint leadership based upon worldly achievements or accolades, whatever it might be, but based upon Holy Spirit guidance in that person's life and wisdom. Once again, we don't appoint leadership based upon worldly achievements or accolades or stature or whatever it might be, but based upon Holy Spirit's guidance in one's life, Holy Spirit guidance in in one's life, and do they display wisdom? Do we display wisdom in our life? Once again, reminder of Saul. Saul, the very first king of Israel. The people of Israel chose Saul because, man, he's checking all the boxes. The guy's a head taller than everybody else. Man, he's a good-looking dude. He just seems like a natural-born leader. But he was an absolute disaster leading the nation. And God essentially said, now are you ready for me to pick one based upon the characteristics that I honor? And David, of course, he was a man, and he fell into sin himself because he walked away from God's way. But in the end and in the beginning of his ministry, he was one that was following godly leadership. We don't appoint leadership based upon worldly achievements and accolades, but based upon Holy Spirit guidance. Are they guided by the Holy Spirit and by wisdom? So you say, Pastor, there's no way I could ever live up to that. Why should I ever want to, in fact? Why should I ever sort of step off the sidelines and put my hand on the rope, as you say, Pastor? Well, first of all, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we know we're not going to be perfect, but we should desire to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. We should be desiring to grow in wisdom. We should be desiring to grow in that, that yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. Irregardless of leadership in the local church, that's how a believer in Christ should be growing. And we do that for the honor and glory of God that we might glorify and honor him in all that we do. And that we we might be well positioned to be ones that are ready to take the good news of the gospel to the world. Ones that are serving Jesus Christ out of gratitude for what he has done. But guess what? Guess what? If we're growing in that way as well, if we're growing in, in, in wisdom, We're growing in Christ-likeness, and we are daily yielding ourselves more and more to the Holy Spirit. Guess what? We are going to find that that is what we've been created for, 
That is the purpose we find for our lives. That is exactly what we've been made to find our joy and our purpose and satisfaction in, being full of the Holy Spirit, growing in wisdom, growing in Christ-likeness. Making change in our life is never easy, but we don't do it on our own. We do it with the Holy Spirit that's within us. And when we begin to see ourselves grow in that Christ-likeness, we experience the joy, the joy therein. So let's break down some of these particular things he says here. The very first one where he says, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Being full of the Holy Spirit, when we see these these sort of references in Scripture, speaks of consistently allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through you. So for the believer in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. That is part of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. But when we, when we are being f- filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are daily full of the Holy Spirit, it means consistently allowing ourselves to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. To wake up each day and say, I'm not doing it my own way, but I am allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through my life. What do we see? We see some examples of this in Scripture. By none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Take a look at this. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If you don't know the context of this, if you don't remember the context of this, this is when he is then immediately tempted by the enemy. But he was able to to endure this because he was being led by the Holy Spirit and he was full of the Holy Spirit. And so when Satan came to tempt him, he was able to resist because he was being consistently controlled and allowed to work and allowing the Holy Spirit to work and control him, even, even the Son of God. What do we see here in the next chapter, in fact, from our current context? Chapter 7 of the book of Acts, we see Stephen, who's mentioned here in our primary context. It says, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What's the context of this? What's the context of this? We know in, ver- in chapter 7, when you read chapter 7, you'll see that Stephen was taking the brunt of this sort of early stages of persecution of the early church. And so he was one who was led by the Holy Spirit. We obviously see he was full of the Holy Spirit in our context today. He was led by the Holy Spirit. And the, the leadership, the religious leadership of the Jewish people brought him in, threatened him, and then in fact accused him of speaking blasphemy because he was right at the heart of this new movement of Jesus Christ that they thought they had stamped out by crucifying him. Stephen's right at the heart of this, and, and, and they're seeing amazing things happen. They call him in, they put him on trial, they accuse him of blasphemy, and then they stone him. They stone him to death. But it says he was full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was able to operate and to minister in the midst of such courage, with such courage, because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Ephesians 5.18 is this admonition given to believers in Jesus Christ. It says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So what's the sort of equivalent there? As we are controlled by wine, he says, don't be controlled by wine. Don't allow it to control you. But what are we to be controlled by? None other than the Holy Spirit. 
So to be full of the Holy Spirit means we're consistently allowing the Holy Spirit to take daily control of our life and work through us. So we're not only, not only a qualification here to be full of the Holy Spirit, but also wisdom. This was another characteristic they looked for in these men that they called for this specific task. Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom, and we see it personified in the book of Proverbs. We just left that sermon series not too long ago, a wonderful sermon series in the book of Proverbs, in which we see that sort of dichotomy of the fool and the wise person, the one who walks in wisdom. Walking in wisdom is the consistent application of biblical truth in daily life. So it's not just knowing things. A person can be very intelligent, can be very smart, can have lots of knowledge at hand but not walk in biblical truth, and they can be just as big a fool as anyone. Because remember, we talked about that from Proverbs. Foolishness in the Bible is not ignorance, but it's willful disobedience of the way of God. And so when we walk in wisdom, on the other hand, it means it's consistent application of biblical truth in everyday life. Now, here's the encouraging thing. When we see full of the Holy Spirit, we see examples of that from Scripture, we see wisdom, one who is consistently applying the Bible to everyday life. These types of examples, these callings, these characteristics of one who is to serve aren't, aren't characteristics, super characteristics of some sort of first century super Christian. Not at all. These are things that God calls us to and gives us the ability to do because of Christ-likeness in our life. So it's not desirable, it says, that we should serve tables, but call out these men from among you, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint them over this business. But we will give ourselves, he says, continually to the ministry of the word. So here's the thing. Prayerful leadership in the church, prayerful leadership, preaching and teaching are crucial roles for the pastoral leadership of any local church. And it's crucial that those things, even more importantly, are exercised in the midst of a local church. Now, again, as I said before, that doesn't mean that it is only relegated to those roles and responsibilities in a church. But above all things, those things must be present. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 4, a couple of chapters here prior to where we're at today. Starting in verse 23, when it talks about, and maybe some of the headings in your Bible say, a prayer for boldness, a prayer for boldness. So the context of this, again, is Peter and John, after, after a man uh, born blind, has been healed in the temple. The Sadducees, again, the religious leadership of the day, religious and political leadership of the day, bring in Peter and John, and they want to threaten them and scare them. They're concerned that this way of Jesus Christ is spreading throughout the world. It's, it's really starting to spread. And so they're concerned about that. So they say, let's call these guys in. Let's shake them a little bit. Let's shake them, and we'll scare them, and they won't go out, and they won't preach again in the name of Jesus Christ. But Peter and John, full of the Holy Spirit, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, so much so that the the religious leadership say, these are uneducated and untrained men, but they are speaking with boldness and power. They must have been with Jesus Christ. What an impression they're making upon them. So they're let go, they're freed, and what do they do? Peter and John head back to the disciples. They gather together, and what do they do? They just say, whew, we need to shake that off. Let's do something else. Man, give me my phone. I'm going to scroll through my phone. I'm, kinda, I, I'm worried about the day. I'm nervous about the day. I'm going to kind of unwind. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to scroll through my phone, whatever it is. No, what do they do when they've dealt with tremendous stress and pressure? They come together and they pray. 
They pray, and it says this in verse 23, And being let go, Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard that, they raised their voice, the group, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David, you had said, Why have the nation raged and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ, a prophecy of the Old Testament that spoke of the very time that they were in now. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose uh, beforehand determined to be done. He said, it wasn't a surprise that your son Jesus Christ was crucified. It was part of your plan to free us from sin and death. Verse 29, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word, that we might speak your word. Give us the boldness that we need by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Folks, this again, this isn't something just relegated to the first century church. This isn't just something that died uh, with, with, with biblical times. The same Holy Spirit at work, the same God at work is the same God that we serve today. Folks, you want to be part of a prayer time? Let me give you a practical time. Let me give you a practical time that you can come and be a part of a prayer time that one day we hope to see have that same sort of power there. We, every Sunday morning, right here, 9 a.m., right here, before we gather together for Bible study, we are gathered right here in prayer. Let me challenge you, if you're not coming out already to be part of this prayer time, come and join us and be part of this prayer time. So he said again, he says, what, is, what are two roles that the pastors are supposed to lead in? The pastoral leadership are supposed to lead in the local church, but is to permeate through all of us? Prayer and the ministry of the word. Flip with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, this is a calling that is given to Paul's apprentice, Timothy, as he is ministering in the church of Ephesus. And what does Paul call him to do? We read this a couple of weeks ago as well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I charge you, therefore, Paul, writing to Timothy, his apprentice, I charge you, therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and his dead at his appearing in his kingdom. What does he call Timothy to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Doesn't that sound like our modern culture? people of our modern culture and unfortunately sometimes even within the local church can be reaching after this teacher or that teacher regardless of whether they are teaching biblical truth or maybe this sort of idealist or maybe this sort of uh, talk show host or whoever it might be maybe this meme or that meme that we pull off the internet because they have itching ears for they will heap for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables but be watchful in all things Endure, endure afflictions for the work of evangelists. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Folks, that is the responsibility, just as we see here. That's the calling and responsibility that God has given me as pastoral leadership of the church. But that is something that we need to see fulfilled within the local church. We are to be 
We are to be a people of prayer and a people of the ministry of the word of God. And so what does he say here again? They call out the people. They call out this group of, uh, of men. They, re, they recruit this group that are uh, living out this example of godliness filled with the spirit and wisdom. And who are they? It says in saying, in the saying, please the whole multitude, verse 5, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, and the saying, please the whole multitude. And what did they do? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We saw how he lived that out in the very next chapter in verse 7. And Philip, Philip was one who we see instrumental in the early spread of the gospel. We see him show up in Acts chapter 8 as he was able to, to preach the good news to, a, to an important man of Ethiopia who God was stirring in his heart. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They commissioned them. Once again, they weren't saying that, hey, we're going to kind of give you this sort of leftover thing that needs to be done. It was a calling of the early church, and it was important. It was important. Whatever God calls us to do in the local church has tremendous importance, tremendous importance. We need to be, once again, people with hands on the rope, living it out in servant leadership. Now, here's the thing that's pretty interesting about Stephen as well. We saw his tremendous witness of his life, and it says here in this specific place that he was a man full of, of faith, full of faith. Again, full of faith isn't something that's relegated to a super Christian in the first century. What does it mean to be full of faith, to walk in faith? Many of you have heard of the old, uh, uh, the old group. It was a campus crusade for Christ, which was uh, its forerunner was Navigators Ministry, and they focused on discipling, helping people grow in their uh, in their faith. And it was a, what was called a parachurch organization, organizations outside of the local church that helped people grow in faith. And they saw a lot of their, their great work done on college campuses in the last century. And they had a working definition for faith. Working definition, meaning how do I kind of make this make sense in my daily life? And this is their working definition for faith. Living as though the Bible is true, even when I don't feel like it's true. Living as though the Bible is true, even when I don't feel like it's true, right? It's easy for everyone to, to, to live, even though we don't do it well as we should. It's easy for us to say, well, love your neighbor, right? We can kind of all agree on that, and we know maybe we don't do it as well as we should, but we can kind of all agree that's all right. Well, what about when it comes to an issue? What about when the Bible says something that really sort of pokes at your heart a little bit? Or you think that, man, this is probably the right thing to do. Or you're getting advice from a friend. Or you're getting advice from whatever source it might be. And God's word, when you read it and you're in the midst of reading in your life, clearly says, this is what you're supposed to do. And what God's word says and what your feelings are or advice from a friend or advice from any other source are at conflict with one another. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust that the Bible is the word of God given to us by an unchanging limitless God? And are you going to trust it even when it's difficult? Or are you going to do things your own way? That's living by faith. Faith isn't some sort of a nebulous idea. Living by faith means that we are living as though the Bible is true and we're being obedient to it. Living as though the Bible is true even when I don't feel like it's true. Even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, we say, I believe this is the word of God and I believe his way is right in the end. 
So they called out these men to take on this incredibly important role. We see the background of two of these, in fact, and one who we know was full of faith, an example that we can live out. And then what do we see as we see the wrapping up of this particular narrative? I don't believe verse 7 is given by happenstance. Then the word of God spread. So the the gospel spread, the good news of Jesus Christ spread, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of them were the priests obedient to the faith. Wow, what a really interesting note about this. This word here for spread is really a similar word that we see in the parable of the sowers. When the seed is spread, it's almost the same idea. The word of God was spread. The word of God was scattered, and it was falling now on particularly fertile soil. So what are we called to do? We are called to go and to spread the seed of the gospel. But it is up to God of whether or not it's going to fall on fertile soil or not. We are to go to our places of of work. We are to go to our schools. We are to go into our neighbors and our neighborhood. We're even in our own families to go and spread the seed of the good news of the gospel. And it is up to the Lord whether or not it will fall on fertile soil. And oftentimes we are greatly surprised. We are presently wonderfully uh, in in praiseworthy praise of God of, of the type of soil that it falls on. And we see that here. At that time, there might have been 8,000 priests and Levites that were serving as part of the great many things and procedures and practices that needed to happen in the temple. These weren't part of the sort of priestly Sadducean, uh, priestly aristocracy of the day. These were the, the, the simple priests that were serving and helping the people of Jerusalem, serving in the temple. And what happened? The word of God began to spread among them. And you see this incredible miracle of many of these priests coming to faith in Christ, a place that many of the day, part of the early church had said, it'll never spread there. It'll never spread there. And it absolutely did. You know, we're called to scatter the seed faithfully, and God will help it fall on fertile soil. We're called to do it. Listen to this, folks. Write it down. When we all serve, when we all serve, and we do things God's way, amazing things happen. It sounds so simple that it's almost simplistic, but there's power in it. There's power in it. When we all serve, when we all put our hands on the rope and we do it God's way, amazing things happen. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Folks, we can see that. You can see that in your lives. We can see that in our church. When we all serve and do things God's way, amazing things happen. Let's pray. We're God. We know that amazing things, the amazing types of things that we do not know are not limited to the pages of history. They're not limited to the pages of biblical history. But Lord, you are doing great things even in 2019, soon to be 2020, in this world, all over this world, in the name of the gospel. And so God, we pray that we need to be people that are yielded in prayer. We need to be, and I need to be a a pastor that's leading us in prayer and leading us in the ministry of the word. Not only that we are walking through the truth of scripture, but we are ones that are taking the word of the gospel. And so God, in my role in leadership, God, may we all take on that understanding of it's our, our own responsibility. But God, in particular, help us to see whatever it is, whatever ministry that we're called to, 
All of these things are of extreme importance and all require servant leadership. May we exercise it and may we see you do great and mighty things that we do not know. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.